And good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of those in podcast land who may be listening to this all across the country, all across the world. Even if you're listening to this and you're, I think we have in Ghana, yeah, and uh, where are the pollings now? They're in, they're not still in the Grand Canyon, yeah, so folks are all over the place. So if you're listening to this, welcome. Good morning. Um, I invite you to turn to the book of Leviticus. We'll eventually be in chapter 25. I wanted to thank you all for your prayers uh, and well wishes for the, um, uh, my brother's wedding. That was last weekend. It uh, went pretty well. Um, one of the, the kindest compliments and feedback I got was uh, from my cousin Brittany who said, uh, well, that definitely wasn't boring. <laughs> I said, well, that's fantastic. That's like, that's a great compliment. Thank you. Um, and then, you know, today, you know, we get to go into Leviticus and Pennsylvania. So hopefully this won't be boring. Uh, we're continuing in our series uh, called I Do Not Think That Verse Means What You Think It Means when we are looking at verses, or in today's case, a part of a verse that might be taken a bit out of context, maybe used in a way that um, had there been a little bit more research or reading, um, there may have been uh, a, a wider um, context for the verse than the, than the way it is used. And we're going to look at a specific example about how Leviticus 25.10 was used. But before that, let's go into the context of the actual verse. The book known as Leviticus is the third book of five that are referred to as the Torah, there you go, or the Pentateuch, right. and it's part of the covenant law given to Moses at Sinai during the wandering period. It outlines in detail the ceremonies and the rituals and the rites of ancient Israelites, and it presupposes um, some foundational stories and laws that came before it in Genesis and Exodus, but it also gives a unique window into how Israel related to God. There's very important principles to consider before launching into Leviticus. First, Leviticus shows that Israel shows Israel that God desires to dwell with them, um, to dwell with his people. In chapter 26, towards the end of the book, he says, I will place my dwelling in your midst, and I shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That's the kind of relationship I want to have. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be their slaves no more. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect or or walk freely as the message puts it. The book also shows Israel that they are called to be holy holy by God. Chapter 11 speaks about Israel's handling of unclean animals, and it says, all creatures that swarm upon the earth are detestable. They are not to be eaten. Okay, check. Whatever moves on its belly and whatever moves on all fours and whatever has its uh, many feet, all the creatures that swarm upon the earth, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any creature that swarms. You shall not defile, yourself, defile yourselves with them and so become unclean. 
For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy as I am holy. Did you hear what those two sections had in common? We'll get to that in a little bit. But the important thing to consider for now is that Israel um, has failed to live up to the righteous requirements of God's holy character. So there's a third aspect of the book of Leviticus that we want to kind of land in. We could call this atonement through sacrifice, um, as some commentaries call it. But in plain terms, I think you could say uh, it's the so what. The so what of Leviticus, the so what of Israel's relationship with God. Um, And given the fact that God desires to, one, dwell with his people, and two, guide them on a path to righteousness, there's going to be ways in which God wants Israel to live out their relationship with him. So after Leviticus describes an extensive sacrificial system and the roles of priests in their society, it's then going to outline these great national festivals and God-ordained traditions that could speak into Israel's identity. Anyone who's tried to read the Bible cover to cover may have lost steam somewhere in the middle of Leviticus. Um, as as, As peculiar as it may seem to us, the important thing to remember is Uh, that the whole book is about God's coexistence with his sinful people. And now, examples of these traditions can be found in chapter 25. Chapter 25, look at verse 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall show your field, Six years you'll prune your vineyard and gather their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land. A Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during this Sabbath. You, may, um, you, your male and female slaves, your hired and uh, your bond laborers who live with you, for your livestock also, and for the wild animals in your land, all its yield shall be your food. So Israel is to work their fields um, in organized agricultural labor for six years, and every seventh year they're to give the land um, complete and total rest. There was to be no organized sowing or pruning or reaping. It's as if Israel would, for the time being, go back to the way they were when they were nomads. They were allowed to pick and gather fruit wherever they find it, but they weren't allowed to actually work the land. One group of people who would benefit from this especially would have been slaves um, or other landless people. It was a reminder to all of Israel that ultimate provision ultimate providing comes not from our own efforts, but rather from God's covenant faithfulness, the God who gives our brow the ability to sweat. Look, picking up in verse 8, though. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. You shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout your land. Now, here's our verse of the day. 
And you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall, sow, you, you shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth, the harvest or, or harvest the unpruned vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee you shall return every one of you to your property. So, they work six years, and then they take a Sabbath year. They work six years, and then they take a Sabbath year. They do this process seven times, and then at the end of that time, seven times seven, even 49, the 50th year is to be the year of jubilee. I have a note, insert, S-men reference here. Whatever. The jubilee... (laughs) Zach's not here, Mark's not here. I keep writing these jokes and putting them in the sermon. Anyway... The Jubilee was more than just a time for the ground to rest. It was a special time, which, if you think about it, basically happened once in every man's life, in which he, his slate was wiped clean. Loans were written off, and land was returned to original owners. Debt was forgiven. Slaves were set free. Commentators tell us that the word liberty, in the verse 10, is taken from the Hebrew word meaning various kinds of release including remission of commercial debts and the manumission or or freeing of slaves. See, built into the socioeconomic system of the people of Israel is dignity for all. Israel wasn't opposed to business, but the text shows that God wanted to prevent the utter ruin of those in debt. In those days, if you incurred a debt and you or your family was unable to pay it, you could sell your land or even your own personal freedom, becoming a slave, in payment of the debt. This would have created nasty social division if it was left unchecked. So the Jubilee made it impossible for you to sell your land permanently. At the most, you could rent out your land and labor for 49 years. It it wasn't wealth redistribution, it was debt forgiveness. As one commentator says, it helped restore some semblance of equality between men and therefore helps to recapture something of the relationship that existed between God and man before the fall. Anyone who has struggled with debt, or financial or or otherwise, um, knows how crippling it can be. It can break a person's spirit and then create a chain of events that cripple their family. Imagine the embarrassment of being thrown into debt because of a bad crop season or because of someone falling ill at the wrong time. Imagine the pain infecting your children and your family as it's passed down through generations and becomes more than just money problems. It becomes a loss of dignity. Then at the Jubilee, there is release. That big mistake, forgiven. That massive debt, forgiven. That land you lost, returned. Slavery, no more. The Jubilee is a reminder that we are all slaves. We're all servants to God. The end of the chapter says, For to me, the people of Israel, this is God speaking to Israel, For to me, the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt, 
I am the Lord your God. Because the land was never yours to begin with. Your abilities were never simply of your own design. You, you may have had success. You may experience failure. You may look at your life and wonder how it ever got this bad. Or you may feel justifiably grateful for the incredible blessings that God has given you. Blessings of a home or blessings of a family, blessings of a career. Regardless, God says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I give you identity. I give you hope. In my hands, I hold your life. That was what the Jubilee intended to remind Israel of if they had kept it. It's not clear whether they did. You know the story. Moses dies, and the Israelites enter the promised land. They get too big for their britches and are eventually overtaken by a variety of ancient superpowers, the last of which was the Romans who occupied the territory during the days that Jesus walked the earth. We're just skimming through history right now. Jesus' ministry grows even after his crucifixion through an ecclesia of men and women who testify that he rose from the dead. The church grows significantly and expands to, among other places, eventually Western Europe. Unfortunately, the church makes many of the same mistakes that Israel did before them, and Christendom is led into civil war. One region that felt this conflict particularly is the British Empire. Over 2,000 years after Israel wandered in the desert, Europe found itself in the midst of internal religious divide. Catholic warred against Protestant as the church fought over the true way to express faith in Christ. During this time, a man named George Fox founded the Society of Friends, otherwise known as the Quakers. The Quakers were Christians who believe, whose beliefs threatened Protestants and Catholics alike. They believed that God's inner light is presence in all people and that they can become good and righteous by allowing that light to shine forth in their lives. Being staunch pacifists, they didn't fit in well with the unstable political environments of the 17th century Europe, and by 1700, about half of the Quakers in England and Wales had actually migrated to America. Many settled in what was known as West New Jersey in an attempt at living together in brotherly love, without war, without lawyers, or eternal conflict. And this worked for a while. Um, but as the social and religious diversity grew, the system began to break down, and the Quakers, uh, they looked westward, and to the western banks of the Delaware River, where a man named William Penn was about to launch a large, holy experiment. The son of a Commonwealth admiral, men, uh, Penn grew up surrounded by privilege and important political connections. After attending Oxford and English law schools, Penn went on to manage his father's Irish estates. Penn was a gentleman of the day, but he was also a Quaker, and he was quite brilliant. In the late 17th century, he discovered that the king owed his father a large debt. Penn converted this debt into a charter for an American colony that would in time come to be known as Pennsylvania. This sure isn't boring. Quaker colonists came to the New World unarmed not even organizing a militia until after 1740. They had such a good relationship with the local Indians that they nicknamed him Miquan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Is there a word for quill, which was like a pun on pen? <laughs> Those crazy natives. 
the colony struggled with the right form of government and didn't stabilize until the 1720s. But through it all, Pennsylvania remained a haven for religions, for all religions, which grew into a source of pride for those colonists. Now, in 1751, the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly ordered a new bell be made for the State House in Philadelphia. The bell was originally cast in London, but soon after it arrived, it cracked. Two local craftsmen, John Pass and John Stowe, cast a new bell in 1753 using metal from the original one. So that's why on the center portion of the bell on your bulletin, um, the inscription reads, Pass and Stowe, Philadelphia, 1753. Moving upward, it also says, by order of the Assembly of the Providence of Pennsylvania for the State House in Philadelphia. And above that, it says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, Leviticus 25.10. Oh, you say. I don't think that verse means what they thought it meant. The State House quoted only part of the verse 10 and took the line completely out of context. They used it to refer to the part of the, citizen, uh, to the, part of the citizenry in making laws to govern their own and allowing citizens to freely choose their own religion. The context of Leviticus, which we discussed earlier, shows that the verse is entirely about the year of Jubilee, the time of liberty as in the time of release in which debts are forgiven and slaves are freed. However, let's fill out the history a bit more to see if we can't see a bit of how the bell fits into maybe the larger picture. That might help us to look in the state of Pennsylvania with a bit more love and mercy. First... The Pass and Stowe Bell was cast in 1753. Now, in 1753, what hadn't been invented yet? Internet. <laughs> the Internet, yes. The United States of America, yeah. Right. That didn't come along until... The bell was cast for the PA State House for a specific purpose. In the 18th century, bells were used as an important communication device. It aided in the announcement of important news. Maybe a fire needed to be put out. Maybe people needed to be warned of a possible attack from Indians or enemy soldiers. And often it told people to gather to hear important news. The State House bell rang to declare the death of monarchs and the coronations of new ones like George III. It called together gatherings for discussion on the Sugar Act in 1764 and the Stamp Act in 1765. Historians doubt it, but tradition even has it that the bell rang to announce the news associated with Lexington and Concord and to call Philadelphians to the State House to hear the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence. The term Liberty Bell actually wasn't coined until abolitionists used the term in the 1830s. The bell was taken as a symbol of the group who were attempting to outlaw slavery. After the Civil War, the bell was actually taken on a tour of the country and used at expositions and fairs to help heal the wounds of the Civil War. In, 17, in 1873, John Shoemaker, who was the chairman of the Philadelphia Centennial Committee, had this to say. This is true. There appears to have been no first jubilee to all the inhabitants on our 50th anniversary. Too many millions of our inhabitants were then in slavery. We then could not fully carry out the text and proclaim liberty to all. But now upon the second 50th year, we are able to do so. 
Cracked and shattered as the bell may be, the base upon which that motto is cast remains firm and solid. And, our and as shaken as our country has been with the din of battle and bloody strife, that principle remains pure and perfect for all time to come, and the whole text, Liberty Jubilee, will be literally carried out in 1876. Liberty can now be proclaimed throughout the, all the land to all inhabitants thereof. Not quite. On many levels, not quite. There's one principle here, though, that I, I, I think is worth mentioning as we close. Um, and perhaps it'll help point us in the right direction as we kind of ready our hearts for communion. Luke tells us in his account of the gospel that once when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. At one point, he actually reads from the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of slight sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As he, after he read it, he sat down and he told those gathered that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The quote was from uh, Isaiah, but you can hear the themes of liberty and freedom and the year of the Lord's favor in the words as they reference themes in Leviticus of the God who desires freedom for his people. Friends, God desires for us to dwell with him, to be holy as he is holy. Only through the broken body and the poured out blood of his son, Jesus Christ, can true liberty be realized. Liberty from the bondage of our own sin. The joyful proclamation is that this liberty is not something we must work to attain. It's rather a free gift given through God's amazing grace. Titus 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The good news is that your debt has been paid by Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Whatever red was in your ledger, Jesus paid it. He warmly invites us to live lives of freedom, but firmly reminds us that true freedom is only found by following him. I mean, how do we properly respond to something like that? Well, through discipleship, through prayer, through worship, through loving others and living in authentic community. That is liberty. I'll remind everyone that we are preparing for our annual baptism that's going to be held at the halls on August 24th. Uh, one writer says that in baptism we die with Christ and we are raised with Christ. We die to the old life of slavery to sin and rebellion against God and we rise to live free as agents of God's reign, as agents of God's restorative justice.
If you worship Jesus as king and you've not been publicly baptized, I encourage you to spend some time praying. Perhaps as we take communion, asking God if if this summer he's calling you to make a public declaration of freedom because Jesus is your liberator and you want the world to know it. In the same way, coming forward for communion is just as serious. Our communion table at New Hope is an open table, and we invite all of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. Now, if you do not worship Jesus as King, you should not feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. First, though, please stand and join as churches throughout the century have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed.